Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you don't live in Chicago or the Chicago area, you may not have heard of Tom Dart, the sheriff of Cook County. Uh, But if you're a student of criminal justice reform in this country, you probably have. Uh, Tom, uh, who came out of a traditional Chicago political background, became sheriff of Cook County and very quickly realized uh, what he was dealing with in running the largest jail in America and uh, the kind of people who get caught up in the criminal justice system who shouldn't be there and shouldn't be sitting in a jail, the mentally ill, the poor, uh, guilty of uh, shoplifting and other minor crimes who end up spending months, sometimes years, uh, in incarceration. Uh, and he has implemented some incredible reforms. Uh, I sat down with him the other day and uh, talked about the state of our criminal justice system and what we can do about it. So, Tom Dart, uh, you are uh, Sheriff of Cook County. You've become a, a major voice nationally on the issue of criminal justice reform. But I want to, before we talk about all of those issues, I want to talk about your career path because it's it, quite you, tortured. You, yeah, well, it it, it had it's had its zigs and zags. <laughs> but the thing is that you started off in a very traditional kind of way in Chicago politics. You come from a family that sort of was involved in Chicago politics, and you. You you started off on this, the route that a lot of Chicago politicians uh, take. Tell tell me a little bit about where you come from and 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 how you got to where you are today. Be, because it's it, it, it it's a as you say, not a straight line. No, there was nothing straight about it. And it's interesting because my father was involved on the periphery of politics. He worked for the first mayor daily as uh, first assistant corporation counsel. So we had government in our DNA, I guess. But my father uh, was obsessed with the notion that I don't shouldn't get involved with. He thought I was too um, honest, and he wanted me to make money because he never had the opportunity to make money. So he was involved in on the periphery of Chicago politics and thought you were too honest to be part of it? Oh, yeah. He said, Tommy, you'll never survive. <laughs> uh, and so... He did everything he could to keep me out of politics, and I think when I ran the first time, it was his dream come true because I was running against, a, I think it was an 11- or 12-year incumbent African-American state legislator in a district that was 80-some percent African-American. I was running head-to-head. So I think it was his dream in the sense that I was going to get it out of my system. I'd run. I'd lose. Why, and, why did you want to run? Um I always felt at a very young age that I want to be engaged in making change and making a difference. I mean, it sounds naive and it sounds simplistic, but it really was that. I didn't have a precise notion of how I wanted to do it, but I often thought that government would be my best vehicle to make change in our communities. And so it's always what I want to do. And even though my dad, who I loved horribly, was always pushing me to go more into the law, because I've been a lawyer, to, to go in the business of law, um, it never interested me at all. And so when I left law school, I went directly to the state's attorney's office because that was something that intrigued me. And I thought it could help victims of crimes and the like. And, and I did, and I enjoyed it, but it was very limiting. And so when a legislative seat was somewhat of available, um, I decided that was going to be my attempt to move to another level. And you got to the legislature. The Illinois legislature is an interesting mm-hmm. place, uh, tightly managed. 
Yeah, uh, and it, it's interesting because it goes through cycles, and I do think it's almost a recurring theme that everyone always looks back on the um, generation or the, um, the sessions before saying those were the good old days. But when I first started in the early 90s, it was a different place where individual legislators had ability to introduce hundreds, which I did, hundreds of bills. You could amend anybody's bill at any time. And there was a freedom there that, frankly, was somewhat how I believe it's supposed to be. And after two or three years down there, having nothing to do with me, but the rules dramatically changed, similar, I believe, to what goes on in Washington, where it's so top-heavy that uh, individual members have very little voice whatsoever. I have a speaker in Illinois, Mike Madigan, who's been there since, I think, the Pleistocene age. (laughs) Um, maybe 40 <laughs> years or so, 30, yeah, yeah. 40 years. Um, pretty pretty autocratic in terms of the way he runs the institution. Yeah, it, it is now. And I'm not saying that I, – I, I had this unique window because my first two years we were in the majority. And it literally was a free-for-all in the best sense of the word. I, I introduced 100-some bills, and I, I don't know how many I passed. I passed a lot of them. I was literally on the floor all the time, putting my bills that were dead as amendments on other people's. But it was real freewheeling and really nice. And then about two years into it, they, the rules were changed. We are now, by the way, just in honor of having the sheriff here, we, are, we have sound effects. Absolutely. So this we is, cued the siren. This is just yes. like being on yeah, one of Yeah, yeah, I just want shows. you to feel at home. I yes, want you to feel at home. <laughs> Actually, unfortunately, my office is in the jail, and I hear sirens around the clock, so it is sort of <laughs> second nature to me now where I don't even look anymore. It's like, oh, well, but whatever. So um, the legislature. <laughs> but so the legislature dramatically changed. And for people who are not familiar with legislative processes, they can't conceive of how something as simple as a rule change could be of anything of note. They think it's just, okay, you got your parking place moved over one. What's the big deal? The rules run the whole place. And if you change the rules so it can be more uh, conducive to autocratic rule, it changes the entire body and the way it operates. And that's what happened. It happened in the Senate, mind you, first. The Republicans took over the Senate. They changed the rules. Then the House followed suit. And so it went from a pretty free-form, free-flowing place to where you literally were given three bills a year that you could sponsor, which I had my heated arguments with our own members about and fought the Democrats more than I fought the Republicans because it was like, guys, we can't do this. This is We need a lot of legislation, not less. And um, it got down to three bills a year, and the bills all had to be approved by the leadership. Otherwise, they weren't going anywhere. So it, it became clear to me after a few years I needed to get out because I wasn't able to make any difference down there anymore. So you ran for state treasurer, and you were burdened with bad – Consultants. I had the most outrageous. Uh, me consultants. being the principal. Yes, one. it was you actually. Yes, um, I probably was your last loss. I, I wanted to get this <laughs> off my chest. It's been bugging me ever since. Yeah, but uh, uh, no. You know, I often tell people that for me, I had run my course in the house. I could have been elected and reelected down there, but it wasn't serving any purpose. You know, what's a title if you can't do anything? And that's what it was. Uh, and when I was looking for another place where I can go and make a difference, there weren't a lot of opportunities out there for me. And I hadn't made a lot of friends with a lot of people and some of the um, you know, power brokers, if you want to call it that way, in the party. And so uh, the treasurer's race was open. The reason it was open was because Judy Topenka was— She was the Republican. Yes, exactly. Very, very popular. Yes. So there wasn't a lot of people queuing up to run against her. I thought there was a limited number of things I could do better in that office for one term. It was really going to be something where I thought I could be positive, have an impact for one term, but after one term— there was no reason to be treasurer anymore. So I looked at that as a place I can do something and then see if I want to stay in government, get out. But I didn't want to just leave. I didn't want to just leave. I thought that I could be impactful, but I needed the right place. So you you didn't win. Correct. Um, and you could have gone and pra- gone your father's route and practiced law. Yeah, I had a lot of offers from law firms that were quite lucrative. And you turned them down. I had no interest. I never did, though. I mean, even when I was in law school and people were scrambling around to try to apply to this big firm or another, I never even followed any because I had no interest in that. And you uh, went to work in the sheriff's office of Cook County. The sheriff was someone from your neighborhood. Yeah, uh, Mike Sheen was the sheriff at the time, and he had been sheriff for, I think, 12 years at that point. And I was there for about three years. And it was in a somewhat... um, 
really obtuse role because they Mike had been in office for so long, so people had their lanes and the like. And I went in as chief of staff, but I really didn't fulfill that role. I was more working on jail issues and jail overcrowding issues. Uh, and so it was okay for about a year or so, and then it was clear that I just wasn't able to get things done that I wanted to. So I was actually looking to leave and had been looking at my wife's from downstate Illinois. We'd looked at even moving back where her family's at. And then Mike literally in the 11th hour decided not to run. And I thought it was an office where I could really get a lot of things done. I, nothing like what we've done. I didn't think we could do all this stuff, but um, I thought I could make a difference there. When you got there uh, and started working in the sheriff's office, you had been a prosecutor, so you were familiar with the criminal mm-hmm. justice system. What did you learn when you actually started dealing day to day with the Cook County Jail, which is, I think, the largest in in the country? In the country, yeah. You know, I, I came across the obvious parts of it. You know that there's issues within the operations of jails and prisons throughout the country, and that this one was no different. It had issues, and we went about just trying to really change attitudes and change, you know, some cultures and things like that. Mike Sheen had started some of it. I mean, we had a DOS-based computer system running the whole place. You couldn't figure out who was in the place, let alone what they were in there for. And Mike had gone about getting that changed as well. But then we went about sort of changing other aspects of it. Um, and as I was doing it, it became clear to me that the the real scandal wasn't necessarily the, the day-to-day operations. That was stuff that needed to be f- fixed tuned cameras put everywhere things like that but it was just what jails were becoming which was just the repository for people that society didn't want to think about for lack of a better word and so i mean it was really a learning experience for me whether it was that or whether it was in the eviction world where you know you hear about evictions and you think about well it's unfortunate someone didn't pay their mortgage but when i was physically going out which i still do not as much as i used to but when you'd physically go out and see the realities of it it's like well this is not right and this is not what our society and our culture is about and you're in a unique spot where you can change it. And so there was a big, as much as I had been around, it was in a limited capacity as chief of staff. It was when I first got in there that my eyes were really open that where I found that the sheriff's office was really sort of at the hub of so many societal issues and ones that were not good either. And it was clear to me that I was in a unique spot where you could make change and make it quickly, which was also was interesting too, David, is that I often tell people that I had some enjoyable years down in the legislature. I met my wife down there. Uh, but the a lot of what I took away from there was the things not to do. And I remember feeling just so, not just emasculated when you, you no longer can introduce bills, you couldn't amend your own bills, all that stuff. But it was just the notion that anything to get, get anything done, you need to have every star in a line. And it was so laborious. And at the end of the day, did you actually affect change? So at our office, I was adamant from the beginning that we were never going to have any element of that. We weren't going to have task forces. We weren't going to have committees. We were going to quickly identify problems, get solutions in place, and then tweak them as we go along. But we're not going to sit on the sidelines and be what I unfortunately see a lot of governmental officials do, which is they overstudy things, A, and B, they're too upset about upsetting other players in the system um, and don't want to embarrass them that they – just pull back and they don't affect the change. And I made the decision right at the beginning that I don't know how long I'm going to have this career, uh, but while I'm there, we're going to push things, push them hard and going to upset people. And that's going to be how life is. If people want to work with us, great, but I'm not going to sit there saying, oh, well, this is going to embarrass somebody or this is going to upset somebody. And so on all these different issues, it was a clear things needed to be done, and this office was unique in the sense that you could do them and do them immediately without having to get any type of um, authorization from some committee that may not even have an agenda. So uh, you came from uh, the southwest side of Chicago. Um, how different was the world that you entered when you when you entered that jail? Um, what 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 did you see and what did you learn that was completely new to you? Uh, because there's a sense that we live in two separate worlds, you know, that there's this, you know, there, 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 there are those of us who are doing well, and then there's this other world in the same community, in the same city. Uh, 
Was it a eye-opening thing for you? It was because you know it was so eye-opening because are we a segregated city? Yes, we are, and is that horrible? Yes, that's horrible. But those are the things that people I, I think acknowledge and see, and they know that. What they don't see, though, is that there really are two different worlds here. And it'd be so easy. I, I tell people probably it's how a lot of people sleep at night if they if they even care to think about these issues. It's easier to sit there and say jails, prisons are all full of these bad, horrible, evil people. And that's okay. what I found when I walked in there. And I sort of knew bits of it from my other dealings as a prosecutor and some of the other work I did in child welfare and things like that. Um, but that the jail was not filled with that. that you know, 10, 20% of the jail were bad people, evil, how they got there, don't know. But that the vast majority of the people there are good people who have made mistakes, poor judgment. But underlying it is their complete and total lack of opportunities to succeed. And it's both on the front end through either failed schools or neighbors, neighborhoods that have imploded years ago, that have no jobs there whatsoever, or that then when we're funneling them back out into the community, having had their stay in the jail for a period of time, we send them back there with a felony conviction, with no job opportunities, and then we're all puzzled why that's going on. And once again, I think it's easy for people to sit there and say, well, those are just bad people. I sit and talk with these guys on a regular basis. And so do I get lied to? Of course I get lied to. I get lied to at my house a lot, but these are five kids, right? Oh my God. Yes. The series of lies that I deal with with (laughs) them. It's just incredible. But usually it's about Barbie dolls and who took (laughs) the Barbie's head off. But the reality of it is I found myself over and over again, talking with detainees at the jail where I honestly thought to myself that if that was my life, I'd be sitting right next to him. And I don't consider myself a bad person. I don't consider myself inherently looking to do evil or any of that. No, these folks aren't doing it either. But what has happened is that I think the criminal justice system has been contorted. And so that the actual analysis of whether or not there's right and wrong going on here gets dispensed with. And it becomes a very mechanical process instead where lives don't matter, individual stories don't matter, that that's just your lot in life. You grew up in a bad part of the area. There's no opportunities. Of course, you're going to get involved with dope dealing because that's how you can make money. And so you get caught up in the criminal justice system. That's just your lot in life. And it's wrong. And it's it's obviously wrong for that. But I found it so stark when I was dealing with the mentally ill, where I was like, well, clearly here I would hope society would jump up and down and say, we can't do this. I mean, these people are here only because of their illness. They are. I think people fall back on the the fact that they say, well, Tom, they aren't just being swept up. They are interacting with the criminal justice system. They're committing a criminal act. And I even challenge them on that. I said, it's not a criminal act. I mean, if someone is acutely psychotic, having mental illness issues that you couldn't imagine, and they're going into a store and stealing a bar of soap or something to eat for that matter— is that Professor Moriarty that is this master criminal? Oh, God, no. This is a manifestation of the fact that they're not getting proper treatment. They end up in the criminal justice system, and we are gladly there to sweep them up into it. And I often tell people, I go, take it to the next level. Are we sitting there saying, well, at least we have them here now. Now we can fix them. Do you know any psychologist, psychiatrist in the right mind would say, you know, for your mental illness, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw you in a four by eight cell with a complete stranger who has their own mental illness issues. We're going to leave you there for an indeterminate period of time. How, 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 what is the uh, length of stay? The jail is basically a holding facility while people are awaiting trial. Um, but some of them are there for a long time, right? Yeah. And that's sort of like the dirty little secret, too. I mean, if literally you don't care, which is underlying my theory on this, if you don't care, well, then how long they're in doesn't really matter. What they do when they get out doesn't matter. All that stuff doesn't matter. And so the— You're warehousing them. Yeah, yeah. And for and that's, once again, if the, you would think, okay, we would have a criminal justice system, A, to deal with bad people, and B, to be, be for a purpose. So there'd be a determinate period of time that is scientifically analyzed as the time period with the following type of programs attached to it to fix people. None of that goes on. None of it. It's warehousing people. They get some get held longer than others. Some get released. Whenever. What's the longest period of time people spend in the jail? Usually waiting on their trial. We've had them up to ten years. My God, ten years waiting for a trial? Yeah, those are usually the outliers. But I often tell people the scandal ones are the ones in the middle, the ones that are there for like stealing a car. I mean. What do you need? I mean, as a foreign prosecutor, what do you need to prove your case? Nothing. You need the vehicle title and the police officer pulled them 
Mueller and said he was the one in the car. And yet those people clog up the system. We have people charged with retail theft as their most serious offense. The average time they spend in the jail waiting for disposition is 120 days. Hmm. Retail theft. I mean, come on. They shouldn't even be in there in the first place more often than not. Why are they there? Because we don't care. I mean, there isn't any type of analysis done. I mean, there's like this felony review, which is a screening process the prosecutors do, but that's for the most serious cases, you know, homicides, sexual assaults, things like that. It's just easy to arrest people, and it's no, you know, it's no cost to whatever police department arrests a person. It's not as if you're charged per arrest to have this person housed. So you're not making any type of economic analysis that is this worthy of bringing someone into the criminal justice system. It's just it's done naturally. And I, I saw it play out when I was when to, you were a prosecutor. Did you did you have that point of view when you were a young prosecutor? Were you guilty of? Sending people to the jail uh, sort of thoughtlessly? I, I probably was guilty of not giving it much thought, yeah. I probably was. You know, I, I, I don't want to say, oh, I was young, I was new, I'm, you know, not culpable. No, you know, your thought of is a prosecutor there to prosecute bad people. Some police department arrested this guy. You got the case. You know, let's move on. Did we have and did I have particularly cases where I said, well, you know, what's this case doing here? Let's this case is probation or let's get this thing out of here. Yeah. But did I think about it the way I probably should have? Probably not. I mean, I don't think it was something that was put into the DNA of prosecutors per se. You know, you're given your cases are presented to you and you 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 move on them. You're trying to clear your docket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I, I and I guess when I've looked at the system, I, mean, I try to figure out you know where the, the 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 issues are, the problems are, and where your pathway out of it is. I think one of the underlying problems is you're in these silos by nature. You know, as a prosecutor, you're to prosecute the cases given you. As a public defender, you're trying to get your client the best deal. As a judge, you're supposed to be moving cases, but no one's overseeing the I guess bigger issue of is this justice? Is this person receiving justice? And that's where I think the system's not necessarily set up to do that. You, you, um, you mentioned the mentally ill. You, I think, were quoted once as saying you're running the world's largest mental institution. What percentage of the people who come to the jail are people who are cause of clinically um, uh, dealing with uh, mental illness? Um, the people that come to the jail... Or not dealing with it. Yeah, the people that come to the jail who uh, have a diagnosed mental illness is probably close to 50%. The ones actually who sit in my custody is closer to about 35%, meaning that 15% of them or so are released on something so they don't come into my custody. They're dropped off for bond hearings, but I still see them. But... Uh, David, one of the points I've tried to make to people, uh, if you think about it, government, what's the most oppressive, significant thing a government can do to its people? I'd say it's incarcerate them. Some people might say tax them, but I'd say incarcerate them. And to do that, then, you would suggest that for a government to do that, this has got to be something that is so scrupulously watched and monitored, engaged. No. I mean, start with the fact that up until, you know, five, six years ago, we had a DOS-based computer system that managed the jail. Tell me who's in the jail, who's, how long they're there, all the rest of this stuff. Is that indicative of a system that really cares? Well, no, of course not. In line with that, the mentally ill were being dumped off in droves. All we were doing was just processing, processing them in, taking them up to a bond hearing. And if the judge released them, they released them. If they put them in my custody, they put them in my custody. If they're mentally ill or not, it really didn't matter. I'm just supposed to hold people. And then I get an order to release them. Well, I knew that was wrong from the beginning. So I started, I hired mental health professionals at the entry point, right when they're dumped off in the morning, 300 a day, they're dumped off at the, uh, the jail there for bond hearings to interview these folks, find out why they're there, what the issues are. And the amount of people with serious mental health issues, no one was watching it. No one was gauging it because it, it didn't fit into the nice, neat little formula. Why did anybody care? I mean, I mean I'm not supposed to care. No one's supposed to care. And so the number was never being fully reported. The only number you'd ever hear is how many are in your custody. Well, that you can get. And even in some jurisdictions, you can't even get that because they don't even watch that real carefully. But here, you weren't even monitoring how many were coming into your system, even if it was for six hours and being thrown back right back to the street, still mentally ill, still no support system, and off they go until they get arrested again, which is usually a couple days later. And this time, they might be held, though. Now, you've done something unusual that made national news. You uh, Tell me about your warden. The, 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 
the image of a warden of a jail or a prison was sort of the kind of guy you saw in Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the sheriffs are like that too. When I go to like sheriff's meetings, I do not fit in. <laughs> when I first showed up there, I think they thought I worked at the hotel that the first meeting was at. And I was like, oh no, he's the new guy from Cook County. I was like, oh well, whatever. But, the, the but your warden are, doesn't fit in either. No, she, boy, she does not. She's in, I, in her 30s, late 30s. She's so, a, tell us her name. Uh, Nika Jones, Dr. Nika Jones. Uh, Nika, she's an amazing person. She's in a, a uh, psychologist had worked in Cermak Hospital, which deals with the medical needs of the detainees. And that's where I met her. And I was just blown away by both her compassion um, uh, on this issue, but also her um, grasping of it. You know, I mean, I think a lot of folks thought, you know, here I, he's off on one of his tangents again, you know, getting a doctor to run a place. No, 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 she gets it. And she understands that there's people that manipulate systems, that people who might not be mentally ill, um, who are, you know, trying to manipulate systems, put it that way. And um, so she gets it on all levels. She understands the jail world, but she also clearly understands this crisis that we're in now where we have, and I often tell people, you know what, Uh, we don't let our kids get away with saying, well, I didn't mean it. Well, how can we allow adults to do that when you have all these mentally ill people dumped into the system who really are not committing crimes of anything other than trying to survive on the street? Um, How can we as a society not hold ourselves culpable and say, listen, we are doing this, okay? No different than in the time of Dickens when they did their horrible things to people who are mentally ill or poor and things like that. We're doing the same thing, and we're going to be judged the same way 100 years from now. So we need to stop right now, bring in the right type of mindset. And someone like her provides that for me. The other folks I had run in jail were really good. The woman before her uh, is an attorney who wasn't from the jail world. The person before that was a former prosecutor wasn't from the jail world. So I had been doing different iterations of the non-traditional route of running a jail. But this this is the, I don't want to say the final iteration, but this is a mental health professional, we believe the first time ever running any jail, let alone the largest in the country. And she's doing a phenomenal job. And what I told her from the beginning is, is listen, I, I will support you on anything here. Um, but she knew that I already had my plan in place when she came in. I'd been doing it for a while, which was, we're going to treat these people the way they should be, with dignity and as patients, not as criminals. And so we put a continuum of care together. From the time they hit our door, we analyze why they're there. We plead with the judges to get them into diversions and not sit in a jail. We get programs for them when they're in the jail. Then I discharge plan them. I have a separate place where I house them. I now have a mobile unit where we go to the houses. And actually, one of the city clinics that was closed like three years ago, whatever, is we're reopening it Wednesday in February. These are mental health clinics. No health clinics. We're reopening it. One there, of them, there were a dozen of them that got cut in half. Six. Yeah. And one of them, uh, I, I I used to know where they all were at, but one of them was on the west side, and we're reopening it and. I'm operating it. And so we're going to have our own clinics because what we've been doing, was, once again, was never being done before. And this is around the country. This isn't unique here. I mean, th- th- this issue is a national issue. It absolutely is national. And the disregard for people is national. It's going on everywhere. It's not unique here. But we, we'd release people to communities. Well, we now heat map it so we know where people with mental illness, where they're going back, and we're trying to match them to services. When I discharge plan them, I literally give them maps of where all their providers are in the community, where they can get their prescriptions filled. And, and, all and are people making use of this? They are. They are. And it's been fascinating. There's guys, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, there's guys that are seriously mental ill who want nothing to do with us. The majority do. And I, I try not to live by anecdote. I never have, never will. But there's been some that have been somewhat telling to me. Usually when I go into like a living unit of non-mentally ill, they're usually talking to me about their case. And apparently none of them have done it because they're all innocent from what they've told me. Um, and they, they want, they want all, that's their whole discussion point. When I go to the uh, living units for the mentally ill, they're knocking each other over to tell me they absolutely did it. And I keep telling them, listen, I don't need to hear about that, okay? That's for you and your lawyer to dis- to talk about. I don't need to hear about that. I just want to know, you know, how how's it going here? What can we do? To a person, they want to tell me they did it and all they're looking for is housing. They, they want help. And so when we 
are providing this one, they, I can't tell you how many grown men have come up to me, hugged me, crying, saying it's the first time anybody ever cared. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time I have a path because their needs are pretty straightforward. And we, we have like a family support group we started two years ago that's been really wild where we're getting their families reengaged with people that are um, sort of um, had their, their familiar ties broken. And usually the detainees are the first to admit they caused all of the problems themselves. So we're bringing them back together. Um, and it's not just this rosy picture. It's a little torturous, but we're, we're doing that with this notion that we're going to have them stabilized for the community. We're staying engaged with them so that we're keeping them on their meds, reminding them of court dates that they still have court dates, but keeping them in um, housing and on their meds is so huge. And we've had a great deal of luck with that so far. The housing's been more of a challenge. I'm running out of money to to find them places to live when they don't know where to go when they leave. I usually house about 120 people, 130 people a day that don't even know where to live that I find houses housing for them. Um, and I've been trying to get more money, but uh, it's been tricky. Some of the other players don't think it's their job. Uh, but we put together a systemic approach to them. And because it's only been going two years now or so, we don't have all the studies yet, but I have um, an individual from University of Chicago who heard about what I was doing. Fine institution. Fine, fine institution, absolutely. This is product placement. <laughs> yes, it is. But this is fascinating. He approached me, knew what we were doing, and he wanted on his own costing me zero uh, to get involved on the ground floor with the an, an analytics of it, which was so amazing because we wanted to do that because we didn't want to have another program where no one studies it to see if it's effective. And here we had it done for free. And so he's been studying it since we started. And the early return, returns are startling. And they sort of- I Startling wanna, in a good way. In a good way. And I want to say they were expected because what would you expect if you went from literally dumping people in the streets at all hours of the night who are mentally ill at all times of the year and the winter's on to a place where you're holding their hand you're you're getting them ready to hit the streets you have discharge plans for them in some cases drive them to their houses you're finding housing of course you're going to have more success well we're seeing that and our goal is is by doing that we're going to be able to package that and so we're putting it together and sending it around the country to other jurisdictions to get them to buy into it because other jurisdictions have been facing these same problems and they've been looking for answers and i'm not saying that i came up with the answer um, I think having Dr. Jones in there now is, I don't want to say the final piece of it. I had the plan in place and was being executed. Now having someone at the head of the the jail who is actually a psychologist, I think, takes it even further. But uh, L.A. and New York have been having horrible problems with these issues, and we've been working with them a lot on this. And there seems to be this national movement now, to, at least with the mentally ill, to change the way we're operating here. What uh, What is the demographic of your... It's horrible. Population. It's horrible. And it doesn't change either. It's almost consistently. If, if, I'm, if, I'm, a, what, if I'm a black person versus a white person in the city of Chicago, how are my percentage chances of being in the jail? Disproportionate. Uh, you are disproportionately represented in the jail then. It's almost consistently 75, 78% African American, about 15% Latino, and maybe 10%. Uh, white and it's almost consistently been that way for decades what does that tell you it 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 tells me a lot of things i mean the obvious which is that the criminal justice system is disproportionately impacting the african-american community that's i mean you don't have to be liberal or conservative to suggest that that's just the truth but then the other part of it too i would suggest if you're a thoughtful person it would lead you to say okay what does that lead us to believe about community support systems and the like and have we done the analysis to see what is that are leading to these disproportionate numbers and that's what i have found to be so fascinating when you look at this you almost find yourself saying well what do you expect to occur when so you have a community that has loads and loads of issues okay no jobs the housing stock is a wreck foreclosures everywhere schools are modest at best so you have that they're starters now a person leaves and gets a felony conviction, where are they going back to? Well, they're not heading off to MIT when they leave. They're heading back to the community they left from. That community didn't have much to start with. And what, have we retrained them while they're with us? Well, no, a jail does not have that luxury. I'm trying to come up with all sorts of really crazy programming for the place, but jails get confused with prisons. Prisons, the warden knows to the minute when the guy's getting out. Jails, people come and go all the time. The cases get dismissed, they plea out, whatever it is. 
80 some percent of the people in a jail end up going directly from the jail to the community. But yet people have never appreciated that fact. I mean, so that's where the programming, the thoughtfulness needs to be. And it's never been that way. It's always been in the prisons. Yet we're the biggest funnel back to the community. So you have this person that's now involved in the criminal justice system. You're funneling them back to the five zip codes that are disproportionately represented throughout the city of Chicago. It's like five zip codes get the majority of people coming back to the communities. The communities don't have any infrastructure to take these people back. And no one's sitting there holding their hand saying, hey, we're going to give you this new career path and the rest of it. So of course they go back to a community. And of course I had the most fascinating conversation with a um, detainee one day that blew me away in its clarity. And when I was talking to him, I was, I was more or less asking him about how was your experience at the jail? You know, where we, we, you know, do we treat you appropriately? And, I, and then I said, do you want to come back? He goes, oh, God, no. You, know, you guys treated me fine and everything was great. It's gotten so much better because I don't want to come back here. And then I just asked him, and it wasn't in some type of snarky way. It was just, he, what can you tell me that would lead me to believe you're not coming back? And he just paused for a second. Remember, the pause was what got me. He thought for about 10 seconds and then looked at me and said, you know, Tom, I'm probably coming back. It was with complete resignation. And I said, well, why? And he said, Tom, you know, I didn't have a lot of opportunities beforehand. Now I got a felony conviction when I go back. And he goes, I got two kids. I've got to pay for them. And uh, I got to feed myself. He goes, I can always get a job dealing dope. That's always there, and I can make money doing that. So I'll probably do that, and I'll probably get caught again. And I remember afterwards, we didn't, uh, you know, I said, well, good luck, and I hope you don't come back here. And I remember thinking to myself, everything he said was logical. There wasn't anything there. It was like, he's evil. He wants to go out and hurt people. He wants to do bad things. He didn't want to go back and get involved with the criminal justice system. But he did the analysis that what are his real options? You know, what are his real ones? And I remember I, there was no preachiness from my point. It was like, well, no, no you've got to reexamine your life here, sir. It was like, no, I'd probably do the same thing. And so when you have that as the recurring pattern here, I think it's incumbent upon us to put together the strategies for success that aren't going to be successful 100% of the time, but at least it's a strategy. You also, in addition to running the jail, you run a police force uh, that patrols uh, parts of Cook County. Um, Unfortunately, pretty much everywhere now. This is We're living in a time where the relationship between police and community has uh, really uh, come to the fore. I, I you know, I, uh, uh, I was writing 40 years ago about police-community relations, acts of excessive force, and how they were dealt with and so on, and we're still living with that uh, today. And now with the video, people are... Now, we had a video that surfaced in Chicago uh, recently of a, uh, a young man who apparently was on PCP, but acting erratically, um, shot 16 times by a police officer who's since been indicted uh, for murder. Uh, What did you, you you must have seen that tape. What was your thought as someone who runs a police force when you saw that tape? And how does it relate to your conversations with people in the jail? You know, I I think I share the feelings of so many that when I saw the tape, I was horrified by it. I mean, you hear about, you know, shootings, you see things in movies, but when you see a tape like that, it just horrified you because you can't, A, this young man was was, was killed, you know, was, you know, shot and he's charged, the, the officer's charged with murder now, shot and killed. Uh, the way it was done is just something that is just so mind-boggling, it's startling, it's horrific. Um, how that's going to impact itself in the jail and the communities, obviously nothing good. And will it further uh, people's uh, distrust of law enforcement? God, yes, absolutely it will. And it's the very thing that there is no magic fairy dust that will make, you know, communities, you know, all of a sudden, you know, rise up and say, you know what, uh, we're going to tell everything we know about this criminal and that criminal. That's a complicated issue. But when you have a a lack of trust, it it just, it it isn't hard to then explain, you know, why the code of silence, you know, in communities and why people don't come forward and things like that. It it just, it, it really just makes what is already difficult, inherently difficult, all the more difficult. And it's been mentioned before, yes, are there like objective changes that have occurred in 
um, gang structures. They have. I mean, I, they become more factionalized on the street. Absolutely. I see it even more so in the jail that the factions on the street, which are factionalized, are even more factionalized in the jail, where they have new gang variations in the jail. And does that create all sorts of issues and problems? Oh, God, yes, it does. So that objectively has gone on. But as far as going after the um, issues uh, regards to the shootings and the like and the, the, the gangs in the neighborhood, one of the most uh, important prongs of trying to deal with this issue is the level of trust and the people realize that they are um, in a difficult situation and law enforcement's there to help you that there, we're no different than anybody else do we have bad apples we have bad apples but that across the board that we're all pulling in the same direction and when you have do videos, you think that's the pervasive sense in the com- community today no I don't. I mean, I I talk to too many people who just are just so distrustful. And I wish I had the magic fairy dust to say, okay, this will make it all go away. There, there's just there's multiple things that lead people to feel that way. And this video will do nothing but further that uh, feeling that there's a lack of trust, that they can't trust people. The mayor asked the police uh, superintendent to resign uh, as a result of it. Uh, was that the right thing to do? I think, you know, that at this point in time that the mayor would be in the best position to, to, to see that. But given all that's going on, that there's probably a need for a different direction so that the public will, you know, so much is like simple. You live in a community. You probably have the largest number of police officers in anywhere in the city of Chicago in the Mount Greenwood's the name of the community, yeah. the community in which you live. Do, how do police officers process uh, this and is there, you talk about the code of silence among gangs. Uh, is there a code of silence among police officers as well about these kinds of things? Is there a sense that we're out there risking our lives and you know we're going to stand with each other? Uh, there, there, there's definitely, I mean, from the police mentality, uh, they rightfully feel that they have a horrifically dangerous job, and it is. I mean, my God, the. Uh, situations that they go into they are i think what occurs then is that a lot of uh, people within departments then start feeling like it's a little bit like us against them where people don't you know people don't understand us they don't understand how difficult it is and they make snap decisions and so i think then people you know circle the wagons to sort of you know i'm not saying in a criminal way to protect their own that type of thing but they feel people don't understand they don't understand the difficulties they don't understand the issues they're making these judgments that aren't completely based on all the realities of the street what i think it's lost in the shuffle and when people have those discussions are that on the other side of it those are very real feelings too that in a community that feels overwhelmed with crime they need to also feel that yes it is a very difficult job you have but there's a level of empathy here where you're understanding that you know things aren't as neat as we all might want them to be and so i think that's where i sense from talking to friends of mine in the police departments that they feel that a lot of folks just don't understand how difficult their jobs are. And then they sort of, I don't, not in a bad way, close ranks, but then they become more insular. You know, they don't. But on the other side of the equation, you've got, um, you said, as you mentioned, a jail, it's 90% minority. Uh, You know, there's a phrase in the community here about, you know, being arrested for driving while being black. Um, And there is this pervasive sense that you have a much greater chance of being swept up into the criminal justice system, even if you're even if you're guilty of nothing um, just by dint of of being a minority. Are those fair feelings Are those? Is that I mean, the The numbers don't lie. I mean, the numbers don't lie that it is disproportionately impacting uh, people of color in the, the jail setting. And I, you know. I've often, over the years, because of my background as being a prosecutor and the like, I've always tried not to overgeneralize. But the reality of it is, is that the criminal justice system, if not being monitored judiciously, will, in a very benign way, sweep up all sorts of people. And there needs to be a much more thoughtful approach to who it is that we're incarcerating. Um, and I can just I can tell you I, from my experience in the jail and I yeah I talked to detainees but I then run their backgrounds too so I'm not just taking everyone's word for mm-hmm. granted I run the backgrounds and as a former prosecutor I can sit there and tell you I have no idea why these people are in the jail and so 
Are people getting swept up who shouldn't be in jail? Absolutely. And some of them are there just because they can't afford the bond, right? Please, absolutely. I mean, the amount of people that are sitting there because they're poor is staggering. It's outrageous. It's a stain on everybody in our community that we're like, we are. We just, you're poor, you're going to sit in a jail. If you have money, you get out. That's not what the criminal justice system is supposed to be about. You have that, but then as it's with the, with just these staggering numbers that you have in there as well, there are too many people that are being put into jail by default. That you know they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're being swept up. And it, it doesn't have to be like that. A much more thoughtful process can and needs to be put in place so that jails and prisons are for violent people, and that's it. And that if there's an occasional outlier that I'm unaware of, then I suppose you can we can talk about that. But outside of that, there's no thoughtful reason why so many of these people are in the jails, in, in the prisons as well. There isn't. And that's what I found to be so startling when we've been analyzing the populations there. It's just the mentally ill, that's just so embarrassingly obvious. And those numbers are staggering. Um, but then when you talk about the This poor, young man, Laquan Robinson, who was shot— uh, clearly may have fit into that category. Certainly he was on drugs, uh, if the autopsy is uh, is right, but was acting erratically, and that's why he was being followed by police. Is he emblematic of the kind of person that you find in the jail? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we find people in the jail, once again, to show you the thoughtlessness and carelessness of the criminal justice system. Why wouldn't anybody in their right mind say, you know, hey, one of the many things that we are going to be pouring through on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, take your pick, is what is the connection between our criminal justice system and our child welfare system? When I tried to do that in Springfield, you would have thought I was trying to change our former government to communism. It was like, oh, we can't do that. I was like, why is that? No one, we all knew the answer. No one wanted to find the connection. But you have these broken systems that people don't, by and large, care about because it doesn't impact them. This is just that other world that we don't want to talk about, we don't see. Well, Kwan was one of them. He was in our broken child welfare system, too, and then he graduated beyond that. Had apparently some interactions with the juvenile justice system as well. Uh, I believe nothing of significance. But would he be someone that clearly would fit that we should be intervening a lot earlier with in both our child welfare system or juvenile justice? Oh, God, yes. And it's not rocket science to do it. And yet, when you have... This, I mean, there was just a report out today about our child welfare system. I've been talking about it for decades. It was my big issue down in Springfield, but it gotten a little better, but it's back there again. Why, again, do we have a system like that, that is the states come in and taking a child away from a setting because bad things were done to that child? We're their parent now. Would any parent in their right mind do what our system does to them? Oh, God, no. I mean, to start with the fact – I picked the, the, the one that's so obvious. When kids take off from the system, we weren't even tracking that. I mean, what parent would not be indicted if their kid took off and you didn't get around to looking for him for a month or two? That's what we did. And why mm-hmm. was that? Because we didn't care. So give me something to hope. <laughs> give me give, give give me some hope about all of this. Uh, I'll tell you. you know, uh, the, the, I'm, go ahead. The, no, see, all, all seriousness. I was talking to someone earlier about, you know what the, the, the hope is in this? The hope is through, and this isn't just a plug, it isn't, but the hope is through the, the students that you have here at University of Chicago. I have been blown away with not just their empathy, their, but their thoughtfulness and their concern on this issue. When you had asked me to come and come here, I, honestly, I didn't know if I'd be doing a lecture in front of a room with just you and me in there talking. And the number of people that not just have attended, but have interacted with me outside of this, in, in office hours and different places they have me speaking, has been overwhelming. And I found it particularly interesting for me because, you know, I'm like anybody else, I suppose. You read the papers and you develop some of your opinions that way. You know, you hear about this generation and they're self-absorbed, they're caught up in their social media and all the rest of it. I couldn't find anything further from the truth. I found myself thinking to myself, they are more engaged in issues that matter than I think my generation was growing up. And so the hope is is that we have these young people coming up that are far, far removed from being self-absorbed. Uh-uh. They really care. And that, to me, is where the hope is. But this next generation is going to fix some of these things. So they want to, and they're engaged. The problem is here and now. Do you see substantive changes coming? I do see some of it. You know, some of the changes that we are talked about in the federal level, A, will only affect the federal system, which is only 13% of the criminal justice world anyways. Uh, B, I think it will end up being sort of a little carving around the edges. The president's done some really cool things with directing some specific things that 
at specific populations. But as far as the sweeping ones, traditionally in the legislative world, they get watered down to where their significance isn't as great. So there'll be some changes there, but I do think at the end of the day, no one's going to sit there and say, well, we've really got this thing under control. On state levels, you know, in this state, honestly, I don't know where to start with this state. Our governor is studying the problem, which is fantastic because it's only been studied by about a thousand people in the last you know year or so. But apparently he's going to find something new. And when he studies this, what are they going to do at the end of the day? At the end of the day, they I think they'll find themselves carving around the edges. So are there move afoot nationally and locally for some changes? There's some. What we've been doing is trying to carve out populations, and that's been my strategy from the get-go, as opposed to trying to come up with sweeping broad uh, programs. It's to carve out populations, the mentally ill, the poor. Um, the people that are in there on crimes that don't jeopardize anybody and society couldn't accept that, you know, we don't need to lock them up. Work on those populations. Leave the violent people for another day as far as in the criminal justice world. And in doing that, we'd have staggering numbers of people not in our criminal justice system. The impact on those communities would be amazing. And so there are lots of hopeful strategies out there, but I think the strategies that are going to find the most success are the smaller, more targeted ones than the sweeping ones, because my experience has been the sweeping ones usually crumble. Well, your experience is is enlightening, and uh, you know we hope that it spreads, hmm. um, because I think there is the one thing that seems to unite right and left right now is that the criminal justice system is broken and needs some... Uh, real fundamental changes. So, Tom Dart, Thank you Sheriff so of Cook County, good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.